Last week in the responsive reading, today's responsive reading, and then this reading that I am giving you, and the reading from Galatians, I have, without maybe you even realizing, exposed you to almost all of the verses that mention in the New Testament the name Titus in preparation. This is an overview to the letter of Titus. Last week, we began a new study and as I mentioned to you, we are looking at the book of Titus. The verses that I read to you this morning just a moment ago out of 2 Corinthians is to help you to understand things that I have already said and will continue to say, and that is the character of Titus is pretty obvious. He was a man like Paul. Uh, but in preparation for our study for the book, last week we started, and I entitled last week's message, the first one, The Evidence of the Work of God as Seen as seen in the life of Paul and the life of Titus. Oftentimes, we come and just read a passage of Scripture, or we study a book, and that's all we do, and we really don't get what would really result in it. And uh, we saw last week, it was really a tremendous thing to consider, just the fact that Paul was a Jewish man, and we looked at his background. Then you had Titus, and Titus is a Greek and his background was totally different in how God brought these two men together in a marvelous way, neither of which knew him, changed their lives so that they knew who he was, and then miraculously brought them together as a team so that they went forth for the furtherance of the gospel. And that in and of itself in consideration of that relationship is absolutely marvelous in thinking of the evidence of what God was doing. He brought them together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they went forward. This week, what I want to do with you, and it was in your outline last week, but, and, I, and I trust it will not become something that is routine for you again, or that you phase out with your thinking here this morning, but, and I'm going to tell you why. But I do want to get into the background to our New Testament epistles somewhat this morning, and then a background to the epistle of Titus because I really firmly believe that having that information will make the book of more value to us as we study it and will help us to appreciate what we read. I did that. You probably forgot it was because over four years ago. We did that with the gospel according to John so we could really then flow right through the book and see what was accomplished. And I hope we were able to do that as we studied it together. And then by God's grace, Lord willing, next week, we will actually start the exposition and exegesis of the book of Titus itself. Now you say, you know, background to the epistles, Pastor Dan, and that's where we're going right now of the New Testament. You might ask, honestly, why? Why take the time? You look, Pastor Dan, we're here. We just want to get into the meat of things. We just want to get into understanding what the Word of God says in Titus. And, and why even bother to, to take the time? Well, I want to challenge you on a couple of things immediately this morning. Number one, I really believe with all my heart, and I say this in a number of settings that I have opportunity to teach, that most of us have lost touch with the past in every area. It's lacking. I believe we've lost touch with the past with this country in that we are no longer connected to or connect our children sufficiently to such things 
as what it costs to have the freedoms that we enjoy. We, we lose the connection of the struggles that people had, and not just the struggles, but the victories that have been had throughout this country's history to help us appreciate the United States of America and where we live. And look at what hap what's happening now to the United States of America. Tragedy of tragedy, this is not new news, but at one time, in case you didn't know it, every Ivy League college required for every major, didn't matter what the student was majoring in, required you had to study American history. Not one Ivy League college today requires that of every student, not a one. The history books are changing in high school, so they're eliminating and not even dealing with some things. And we're not here to study, talk about our country. But the point is, I'm trying to show you how important it is. You lose the connection to how we got to where we are, and you lose an awful lot, and especially the appreciation for what you have. That is also true with families. Many, many families, sometimes because the families were difficult and even had split-ups and divorces and whatever, and they don't even want to talk about that with their children. That is wrong. You have a family history and ancestry, and so do I, and it is very important for your children to appreciate where they've came from and what the struggles were and what has happened in the past to get us to the family that we are today, good or bad. It's helpful in understanding and knowing. And that is also true with our faith. I really believe that. With the faith, today we're living in 2013, 21st century, and oftentimes there's very little connection, first of all, to God and how he operated in the past, then to the prophets, certainly, and even in our day and age, there's very little connection often to the church fathers. When you hear some of the names that are presented, you, they, they, first of all, they're strange names to us because we don't name our kids with those names. But we see some of these names and we, who are they? What did they do? Is there any significance whatsoever uh, with these people? And uh, we lose the struggles that have resulted in us getting an English Bible. Or if you happen to be sitting here with a different translation because of your background, you forget all the privileges that have got that into your hands so that you and I can study it. So my opinion is, yes, it is absolutely need needed to understand who we are and where we are. That is also particularly true with the Bible. You and I take for granted the fact that we are told it's God's word. We have God's word. Study God's word. Read God's word. Obey God's word. That is all true. And we take that for granted. And uh, we should know it. But it's being challenged today in 2013 as to relevance, in case you didn't know that. Many are saying, why would you want to study a book that's resulted from dead men? Why would you want to study a book that's so archaic? It has no relevance. And if you don't think that's practical, it is affecting marriage today. It is affecting family relationships today. It is affecting government philosophy today. It is affecting our educational system today. It is affecting the way people think about religion today and about God. It's affecting our entire world. And people are being challenged as to whether this book is even relevant and has application and has any reality of ever coming from God in the first place.
and yet we're told every week to study it and to read it. Is it important? I think it is. Let me just take you to a couple of sample verses very quickly, because then I'm not going to be looking at verses for a few minutes uh, to show you why it's important. These are things you know. Go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, very big psalm, as you know. It's the biggest in the Old Testament. And just look at verse 105, which many of you know. God says to us, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If God's word is a lamp to my feet and it is a light unto my path, in other words, a guidance for life, I need to know how I got it and where it is and that it has come from God. Turn with me to two New Testament passages very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, go there. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says there, Now these things happen that Paul was writing about, and I want you to notice this, to them as an example. And they were written for what? Our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now that's in a context of Corinthians and the letter to them, but I want you to see this, that Paul is clearly saying to the Corinthians that when you look back at your Old Testament and you see what happened to Israel and the things he's referring to, that wasn't just an example in history. They're for our benefits. They're for us to know God. They're for us to know about God and how to walk with God. And we benefit from that today. Go with me to Romans chapter 4 is the last one very quickly. Romans chapter 4. And verse 23. Now here it's talking about Abraham and his faith. And we've been talking about it. Uh, faith today and walking by faith. If you look at verse 23, now not for his sake only was it written that it was accounted to him or credited to him. Who's that? Abraham. It wasn't just written so that it was that it was accounted to him for righteousness sake when he looked at the stars and believed God. That's not just for Abraham. That is also for us. And so these men of faith and these things related to faith are very, very important to us in our Bible. So yes, your Bible does have relevance and you should be studying it, reading it. But again, as we go about to, this is a good opportunity to do it very quickly in one week, not in several weeks, but in how did we get to the book of Titus? How did we get to these New Testament epistles? What happened? How did it come together so that you can, I, and I can have it today? And as we study Titus, so that we're looking at the book of Titus, not from, okay, well, that's fine. That was for Titus's day, but it has no application to us. It has no relevance to us today. Well, it does, and I hope you'll see that. To start with, in the Old Testament, I'm going all the way back, and I'll move forward rapidly for a few minutes here this morning. If we were to look at Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, I won't turn there. You probably are familiar with it. That passage basically says this, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That is the starting point. God was here before anything was, before you and I were here, before the planet was here, before anything was, and he always was and always will be. And then from that point on, we know that he created man. Now, there are those who are debating that. I am not here for that purpose this morning. But God created everything, and he saw that it was very, very good. And at that stage, man had a lot of questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where do I go? How do I have this relationship with God? 
And it's interesting because we didn't need a Bible at that stage. Why? Because God directly spoke with Adam and Eve, and he walked with them, and they knew, and, they, and he revealed to them what they had. But as you know, what happened is sin entered into the world, and understand that it entered not by Satan, not by God, it entered by man. Scriptures are clear on that. What happened is Adam disobeyed. There was only one restriction, as you know the story. He couldn't eat from a certain tree, and he did, and his wife did. And that is how sin entered into the world. The result is God, though man today in this century might not think that God is holy, just, and righteous, he is. The evidence is that rather than enjoying the fellowship and getting the direct commands from God and walking with him, man was cast out of the garden. Man was removed from walking with God in the Garden of Eden. He was cast out of it. And also, the, the other evidence that you and I see today is death came on the scene. The wages of sin is death. And so, as a result of that, we still die physically today, and men are dead spiritually. But I go all the way back to that because that's what started God's promise. God promised to deliver them, to redeem men, to have deliverance, to provide salvation, that that would come. And as you go through scripture, you find out that man's pursuit, now being out of the presence of God, is sin, sin, and more sin. So by the time you come to Genesis chapter 6, we read that every thought and intent of the heart continuously is in the area of sin. And that's the condition when man's on his own, out of the presence of God. And then you know the story of the flood and Noah. Well, through that process is how we end up with our Bible, because God began to call a nation, the nation of Israel, for himself. And as he called them for people for himself, he gave them their, his message through prophets. And through those prophets, they were both foretellers as to what was going on right now and foretellers as to what would happen in the future, how they could walk with God and how God would deliver them and send people. So much so that as you go through your Old Testament, basically what you find is they now start recording. Now, this is where people get into, well, that's why the Bible is from man. No. You'll see that in just a moment. But God directed these men so that as he gave them their message, as God gave us his message, they recorded it. Some on stone, some on animal skins, some on scrolls, so that man would know how to have that relationship to him. It was God's basic way. He could have directly communicated with every one of us, but he chose to use prophets and men that he had set apart to record the word of God and to hand it down so we would know who God is, how we are expected to walk with God, who the Messiah will be, how to identify him. Why? The summation of all of that, according to the book of Galatians, is this. So that all of that would be a schoolmaster or a teacher to bring us to Christ, to bring us to the Messiah, to show us who he is. And in the Gospels, by the time you come to the Gospels, he has arrived. And John the Baptist identifies the one that's been spoken of, the one that you read about, the one that you were told how to walk with God and, and how he would be different and how he would redeem you and how he would save. He is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read in Matthew that this is God with us, the sinless one, the one that paid the debt for our sins, 
the one that arose from the dead after he was buried and is coming again. And then in the New Testament, as we look at those Gospels, he chose, as we know, 12 men, apostles. He taught them. He empowered them. And he starts to build what is known as his church. Not a building, but people that were part of God's revealed plan. And rather than just having the nation of Israel to be a witness, he now has what we know as the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. But people still have questions. They had the Old Testament. The Messiah had come. Jesus Christ had gone back. But the same questions are now around for you and I. How do we live for God? What does God expect? How do we deal with false teachers? What will happen in the future? And until the Lord comes back, and you'll remember we studied that in John, he was going away and, and he was going to be coming back, but until then, how would we live? And that resulted in our New Testament epistles, just like with the Old Testament, so people would know how to live. This grew out of real situations, these letters that we have. But was it just written by anybody? Turn with me to two passages that you're very familiar with. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Many of you have this background, but some of you do not. These letters that we study, that we say are ancient books, and we say it's the word of God, well, well fine, Pastor Dan, they came out of real life circumstances, and after the Lord returned with our New Testament epistles, we get these letters. But why and how and how do we know we can rely on them? Well, first of all, 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you just to look at one verse. Verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will. Do you get that? How did our Bible begin to come together? How was it written? Well, this is not Shakespeare. You need to understand that. People talk about Shakespeare being inspired, or uh, poets, Whittier. He was an inspired writer. Well, let me tell you something. He might have had some good thoughts, those men, but they sat down when they wanted to sit down and they decided what they were going to write. That's not the case with the Word of God. That was not the case with the Old Testament. God chose his prophets, and he gave them his word. And we find the same thing's true here. No prophecy ever came by the will of men. Well, then how did it happen? He tells you. This is the process. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It is God that chose the men. It is God, the Holy Spirit, that carried them along, and they, were come, and they came from God, and he gave them the word. How do we know that? One other passage. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 16. And again, most of you know that. All scripture. What is that? Our Bible. The Old Testament. There were prophets. How did Moses decide to write? How did Jeremiah decide to write? It wasn't because they decided, I'm going to write the Bible today. No man ever wrote that way. God selected them. In fact, if you go back to the Ten Commandments, who wrote that? God himself. 
you look at that and it says the finger of God wrote on those tables of stone. He started it himself to show you the process of how he was going to get it to us. Then he used Moses. And by the time, for example, in the Old Testament, you come to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, I believe it is. In Daniel chapter 9, you find him sitting down reading the book of Jeremiah, the prophet selected by God. Why? Because he wanted to know what the future was. And by reading Jeremiah, he knew that there was 70 years captivity. Why? Because it came from God, and he could rely on it. And in our New Testament, it's the same way. All scripture, there it is, verse 16, is inspired. It's breathed forth from God. It comes from God. God picks the men. God is the one that gives us his word. And then he, through the Holy Spirit, guided them in the recording of scripture. So was it written by men? Yes. Guided by the Holy Spirit, selected by God, giving us God's word. And that's how we get what we study today. In real circumstances, wanting to know how to live for God. And that's why you look at the rest of the verse. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for a training in righteousness so that the man of God, watch this, would be equipped or adequate, equipped for every good work. If you want to know how to be mature, you want to know how to be equipped to pleasing God, he gave us the word of God so that we could study it and learn from it. So he chose the men. He revealed his will. He's told us who the Messiah is. And men have recorded the message, and it's come down through the ages to us. Are we sure we got it all? Now, I'm not going through the whole process with you, because there was a process of our, for example, 27 books of the New Testament coming together. How can we be sure we got it all? Well, let me give you just one, two quick passages. Go with me to Jude, right near the end of your Bible, the book of Jude, just before the book of Revelation. Go to Jude. I want you to see verse 3. And I know that many of you are familiar with this, but it's a good review before we study Titus. In Jude 3, there's only one chapter, so it's verse 3. Beloved, I was, while I was making every effort to write to you about the common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you, watch, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And what you have here in this small little letter is a very significant verse that points out that what you ought to fight for isn't something new. It's something that has been once for all delivered and handed to the saints, and now we are to live for it. Go back with me to Second Peter, a couple of pages back, in chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Watch. I'll go back and read verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge, watch this, in the knowledge of God and of the Lord, of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power, his divine power, has granted to us, watch, everything, pertaining to life and godliness, how does that come? Through the true knowledge of him who has, uh, who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
And what I've shown you in Jude and shown you in Peter, just to have you see it in a nutshell for our New Testament epistles, this was God moving. Nobody just sat down and wrote these. God selected the men. He chose what to tell them. And then through the Holy Spirit guided them so the message got down. It has been delivered so that you and I now have, and this is why we want to study the epistles. We have the word from God to know everything about how to live to please God. We know everything about how to be mature. We know everything about how to grow. And we are now to fight for that faith because it's the only one true faith that ever came from God himself. And he's given us in the New Testament, for example, five books of history so we can learn how it came together. Those are the four gospels and the book of Acts. Then he gave us 21 other letters that arose out of real circumstances because people wanted to live for God. And he's given us one book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. And throughout scripture, he always says this, do not add and do not subtract from what I've given. So our job is not to come up with new books. Our job is not to reinvent the Bible. Our job is not to study all that other stuff. Those things can be good for learning. But if you want to know what God has said, he's given it to us in his word. And our job is not to, including me, as we study Titus, it's not to add to what he says. It's not to, what, to delete from it. It is relevant. It was given so that we could learn from their example and know how to please God and live for him. One of those letters is the letter to Titus that we are going to study. Now, how did this come together? What happened? Now, let me walk you through a couple of things. The background of the epistle of Titus, and I want to finish with it today for you, is this. And I hope it helps you as we study the book beginning next week. Paul, who we learned a little bit about last week, was chosen and sent by God. Go with me to just two passages in Acts. Acts chapter 9. Let's go there. Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, I want you to see what God said. In verse 15, is the only verse I want right there in 9, it says this, But the Lord said to him, Go, now he's talking to Ananias here in the passage, and he says, Go, and he's now speaking of Paul, who is now then named Saul. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. What? Watch. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. God chose Saul, changed him as we saw last week. He was a chosen vessel that God was going to send him as an instrument to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the house of Israel. And if you turn to chapter 13 of the book of Acts, Here's where it happened. 13 verse 2. In Antioch, in verse 1, there are men there, and you'll notice the last name on, in verse 1 is Saul was there also. And then in verse 2 we have this. While the Holy Spirit, there's the work of the Holy Spirit again, said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That is where God, first of all, chose Paul. Saul's name got changed to Paul. Now, as he's working in the local church, is what it was, God takes him and sends him forth as he was exercising his gifts and had a mission for him. And he sent to preach. 
He's sent to teach. He's sent to establish churches. I won't turn to it, but in Acts chapter 14, that's what he did. He went back and he cared for the churches and he ministered to them. And Paul was chosen by God. And in the process, he wrote letters to the places that he had gone and to the men that he had ministered with. Some of them were churches and some of them were church leaders like Timothy and like Titus. And as we have already looked very briefly at the process, since God chose him, he gave the message to Paul and Paul sent these letters because people wanted to know, how do I deal with the government? How do I deal with my family situation? How do I deal when I'm living in an environment that's ungodly? How do I deal with a situation where my boss is an ungodly boss? And they had honest questions. How about spiritual gifts? How about when we come together for prayer time? How do we handle that? And the Apostle Paul was chosen by God to write these letters. Well, when we come to Titus, we've already seen from last week in Galatians chapter 2 that Titus was an uh, he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. So let's go to there. Galatians 2.1 again. Galatians 2.1. How did this particular letter come together? I think it'll help us to get more meaning when we begin to expound it next week. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, after an interval of 14 years, that's Paul, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, now notice, taking Titus along also. That's why I read that last week. Titus was a companion of Paul that went to Jerusalem. Now go with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. As we come to this book that we're going to study, and it's always, you know, sometimes people have trouble finding Titus. It's the last T. You end up with Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, last T. So he's at the end, if that helps you to remember it. Okay? And we find out in chapter 1, verse 5, that we haven't studied yet. But notice this. He said, for this reason, I left you in Crete. So Titus, who was a companion of Paul, was left on the island of Crete. He was left there by Paul so that he could carry out some responsibilities. He was left there, as we will see, to even set some things in order, according to verse 5 that we'll study. And Paul was hoping that Titus, after he did that work, could join him. How do we know that? Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, and when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. So that's where Paul is. He's at Nicopolis. He's put Titus on the island of Crete to carry out some responsibilities. And Paul wants to encourage him to complete that work so that he can join Paul. Where, what was involved in Paul's life? Well, he wrote this letter somewhere between A.D. 63 and 67. And I give you such a range because Paul was imprisoned in Rome, then he was released, then he was imprisoned again. He's going to be killed. And after he wrote the book of Timothy, that's 1 Timothy, Somewhere after that, and before his final imprisonment for death, he wrote this epistle. It is known as a pastoral epistle. Why? Because it's written to a man. 
For example, the book of Ephesus is written to the local church. Timothy is written to a man who is shepherding a flock. We get this one written to Titus, who is given responsibility of helping and shepherding a flock. It is the second to last epistle, to help you to understand that, that Paul wrote before he died. To best that we can understand in history, going back to what he's written through the scriptures, Paul's last letter was 2 Timothy before he died to go home with the Lord. And just before that, so we're near the end of his ministry, these problems that we're going to see in the book of Titus were around just before Paul went home to be with the Lord. You just saw in chapter 3 that uh, Paul wanted to see him, but if you look quickly in chapter 3 of Titus, in verse 13, you find out who it was that delivered the letter to Titus. Look at verse 13. Diligently help Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. The name Apollos should ring a bell with you that knows scripture. Zanus, we don't know anything about him other than Paul used this man apparently. He sent two men in verse 12 and he sent two men in verse 13 to apparently bear the letter and to bring it to Titus so that he would know. Why did he write the letter? Here, Titus has been left on the island of Crete. What would stir Paul up to write the letter? Well, Pastor Daniel told us the Lord. Absolutely. But why did the Lord work in Titus, in, in Paul's life, to write this letter? Number one, Titus had not finished the work. Paul got word that Titus was left there and the work was not done. Secondly, false teachers had come in the scene just like today. There were false teachers that were threatening the people of God with doctrine. And third, they were living in a very wicked society. As you will see when we study, the Cretans were known for something. Does anybody know what it is? They were liars. Not that they lied occasionally. Their reputation was they were absolutely, you trust nothing they say. So he had Christians living on an island, trying to live for the Lord, and you've got this reputation of everybody there are liars. You've got false teachers that have come in the scene, and Paul had sent Titus to help straighten everything out, and it hadn't been accomplished. So what happens? Paul writes to him. Why? Well, let's just show you. Number one, to encourage him to finish the work. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. A couple of things this morning. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and watch, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And he's going to start the book off pretty soon. We'll be into that and say, look, I set you there to do that. Do it. It's needed. Secondly, he wanted them to, uh, Titus to stand and the elders to stand against false teachers. Chapter 1, look at verse 11. Verse 10, it says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision of the Jews. Now watch. Who must be silenced. Why? Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not be taught for the sake of sordid gain. In other words, what he's saying is, false teachers have come in, 
and families don't even know what to do. They're all stirred up. They don't know what's right, they don't know what's wrong, and these people are interested in only one thing. What is it? Money. You say, see, that has no relevance to today. Are you kidding me? It's on your TV sets and your radio every day. And your iPods and your iPads and all of that too. And your computers. Where people look good and they're teaching things and it's causing confusion to the people of God because it's not consistent with this. And then they send, say, sell me, uh, excuse me, send me a check for $25 or $30. And people are just interested in money. It's the same problem. And he wanted it stopped. He wanted to introduce him to how, to how to live for the Lord. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, also where good works fit in. In three small chapters, six times, he says that he wants them to be living good works. So he's going to talk about that place. What I really want to deal with you in closing today, though, is this. So he's on the island of Crete. God moved among him to write this epistle. It is something that we want to study. It is historical, but it has relevance to us because it came from God. It has relevance to us because it dealt with living in an environment that was ungodly. It has relevance to us because it's dealing with the structure of a church. It has relevance to us because it's dealing with the fact that we are to live a life a certain way that will produce good works for the glory of God. And it deals with how to live a godly life. I believe the key to the chapter is found in these two verses that I will study later on with you, but at least want to get into your mind this morning. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verses 13, 12 and 13. I will read verse 11. I think this is the key to the book. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. I'll stop right there for a second because I don't even have that as the key verse, personally. That is still true today. God's grace has appeared to all men, bringing salvation to all men, and you and I are a part of God's masterful work to bring that message to the nations of the world. Then he says this, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness, you think we live in a world that's ungodly today? And worldly desires. And to live sensibly. We'll study that. Righteously and godly. When? Now. In this present age. He was writing to Titus so that people would know in the midst of godliness, excuse me, ungodliness, how to live a life that is sensible, that isn't attracted to the world, that is righteous and holy and godly. Now, while something else is going on, what? Verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of that great God and Savior. Who's that? Christ Jesus. You talk to the average Christian today and they will talk to you about the rapture somewhere probably or through their pain and suffering just can't wait till the Lord returns. What does that tell you? They're looking for something. Looking for the glorious return. In our study in the Gospel of John, the last book we studied together, remember that? 
Don't be sorrowful. I'm going home. And if I go home, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And comfort one another. That's what he told his disciples. That's what he left them with. Even as we close that epistle, that all those things were written so that people might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, might have life through his name, and that gospel is to be preached, and that he's coming back again. When we had communion a few weeks ago, the whole center of that is what Christ did, but that he's coming back. Christians should be living in anticipation, verse 13, of the appearing of the Lord and his coming back of our great Savior. He's not dead, he's alive. He's the God of the living, and he's coming back for you and I. Well, that's great. So we should live for that, and I can't wait for tomorrow, right? No, we had Sunday school class, uh, sorry, Sunday morning Bible study this morning. And in, that, in the class that I was in, we talked about today, living for today. That's what it is. Where do you get that? Verse 12, instructing them to live in that godly world, not going after the desires of the world, but to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age until he does come back. I think it's practical. I think it's a book that'll be tremendous help to us. And it came out of real circumstances where a man that was a godly companion of the Apostle Paul, one that he trusted greatly. You've seen that very briefly, but in the highlights of looking at a number of verses. And he left him on an island, and that godly man got discouraged. He got discouraged because of what he saw with the people. He got discouraged because of the false teachers that were around him. And he wasn't finishing the job. He was getting caught up in things and didn't do the job that he was supposed to be doing. And Paul is writing to him in those circumstances so that we can learn. And in those real circumstances was basically saying to Titus, finish the job I've given to you to do. Stand up to them. Don't back down. They will destroy the church if you don't deal with that false doctrine. And live godly because you have a savior coming back. And he's writing to him in three small chapters to encourage him with that. That's the environment of this epistle that we are going to study together. Written to someone who had a terrible environment around him, false teachers all around, and got discouraged and wanted to say, I can't finish it. And Paul said, get up and do it. You can. And he's going to write to encourage him in that circumstances. And God has it in his word so that you and I can be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And that's why we're going to study this book together, Lord willing, starting next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for this exciting letter. I thank you and praise you that we can look at a man like Titus, a godly man, filled with zeal, accompanied the Apostle Paul, but a man who was real, a man who got discouraged and was left to do a job and he even got discouraged to the point that he wasn't doing it. But he was stirred up through this letter. He was encouraged and then with boldness finished the job and now is encouraging us. And Father, we are living with anticipation, looking forward to the return of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Father, you've left us here in this present age and there's worldly desires all around us. Father, there is the temptation to get involved in the ungodliness. 
And Father, we need the instruction, we need the help, we need the guidance from your word to help us to live a way that's pleasing to you, just like Titus did. And I pray that in the days and weeks ahead, months ahead as we study this epistle, you'd use it to stir us up so that we would live presently for our Savior, so that when he returns, we would hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thank you for this time together today. I thank you for the word of God, and might we cherish it as we study it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.